Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. This week, we're going to cover a disaster that's really two disasters in one. The 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and then the subsequent fires throughout San Francisco that followed that earthquake. The San Francisco of 2021 is nothing like the San Francisco that was around in 1906. San Francisco has had a vibrant but also fairly turbulent history. It was founded as a Spanish garrison in 1776, and it changed hands from Spain to Mexico to finally the United States in 1848. Then, in 1848, that very same year, gold was discovered in nearby Coloma, California. Yes, I said nearby. I'm from the Midwest. 130 miles isn't really that far, so I don't want any Californians yelling at me that Coloma is far away. That's not that bad. But anyway, the California Gold Rush brought almost 300,000 people to California. These so-called 49ers, the Gold Rushers, not the football players, so not Jimmy Garoppolo. Is Jimmy Garoppolo still in the 49ers? I don't pay that much attention to the NFL anymore. Uh, Anyway settled in and around San Francisco in droves. The population went from 1,000 people in 1848 to 25,000 in 1849. That's a big growth. Subsequently, during this time, San Francisco suffered seven fires that destroyed a good portion of the town each time. The first fire was on December 24, 1849, at around 6 a.m. It caused an estimated $1 million in damage. The brand new citizens of San Francisco apparently decided that $1 million was chump change because they appeared to have ignored this one and done essentially nothing to prevent another one. Which, most of the people were hunting for gold at the time, so it kind of makes sense. You're there to make money, not to live. Gold takes precedence over fire safety, apparently. And the city was literally being thrown together as more people arrived. They had more people coming than they could count at the time, so it was really hard to, you know make any kind of laws regarding fire safety. It was also 1848, so 1849, I'm sorry, so they don't really have fire laws then. So, of course, the second fire was on May 4th, 1850, at around 4 a.m. The force was clearly not with them on that day, as three blocks of the city burned and an estimated $4 million in damage occurred. This one seems to have woken them up. Oh man, we've had two big fires in six months. We better do something. That doing something was passing an ordinance that fined anyone who refused to help fight fires or remove goods anywhere from $5 to $100. They also passed an ordinance demanding every household have six water buckets filled at all times in case of a future fire. Six buckets of water for a house is not that much and seems to have been a thing maybe to make themselves feel better rather than actually do anything. And fining people for fighting fires or not removing goods is going to be really hard to enforce. And unfortunately, those six buckets could not prevent the third fire from breaking out literally a month later. This one started on June 14, 1850 at 8 a.m. in a chimney on a bakery. This also burned three blocks also caused a couple million dollars in estimated damage. After this fire, they decided, hey, we should do more about this than requiring six buckets of water in a house. 
this keeps happening, so they started to build structures out of brick rather than wood, which was more expensive, but should have prevented at least a bit more fires. But, nah, apparently San Francisco is cursed. Three big fires in seven months is a lot. You may as well pick up and move, because clearly something doesn't want you there. But hey, that's not what they did. Instead, they just kept rebuilding. And like Swamp Castle, it didn't go well. A fourth fire broke out on September 17, 1850 at 4am. And I'm really starting to think, maybe the solution to all these fires is to ban mornings. Every single one of these has started in the morning, so clearly whatever the San Franciscans angered is not a morning entity. This one only is estimated to have caused around $250,000 worth of damage. I say only $250,000 worth of damage, but compared to the others, it's relatively small. And why was it so little compared to the other three? Well, the area it burned had already been burned down in the previous fire, so very little was actually rebuilt at that point. See? Just stop building, and whatever evil spirit you've angered will stop building, burning your city. But no, completely separate from what, are we up to four great fires now? There was a separate fire on Halloween of 1850 that burned down the city hospital. Like, come on guys, this area is clearly cursed. You need to give it up, pack it up, move on. Maybe that gold that you discover is cursed like in Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, in, something's wrong here. But uh, no, they would not give it up. Because humans are nothing if not obstinate. So you know where this is going. On May 3rd, 1851, 364 days after the second Great Fire started, and 18 months after the first Great Fire, the sixth Great Fire of San Francisco started at 11 p.m. This one was considered to be arson, but it was never conclusively proven. This fire burned 10 hours and destroyed 18 square blocks. They estimated... 1,500 to 2,000 buildings were completely destroyed. Only five buildings in the damaged area survived. It was bad. The damage was estimated to be about $12 million. And I've mentioned multiple times the dollar amounts for the damage these fires cost. But all those figures are in $1,850. If you take this last estimated amount and calculate it to the 2021 dollar, it is $400 million in damage. So, a lot. $1 million in 1850 is equal to about $33 million today. These fires were absolutely ravaging San Francisco for the sixth time in less than a year. That's crazy. To have six fires that cause multiple million dollars worth of damage, except for the one that only caused $250,000 worth of damage because the area had already been burnt. That's just staggering. I can't imagine building and then six months later the thing you just built burning down again. That's It's Swamp Castle from Monty Python. He builds the castle, it falls down, sinks into the swamp. He builds the castle again, it falls over, sinks into the swamp. He builds the castle again, it burns down, falls over, and sinks into the swamp. But the fourth castle stayed up. Like, it's crazy. And they weren't done. <laughs> just for good measure... A seventh fire broke out on June 22, 1851. This one also started in the morning, proving that once again, mornings are terrible times of day. This one caused around $3 million worth of damage. 
And at this point, the citizens of San Francisco are getting frustrated. They're building things, and they're burning down, and then they're building things again, and then they're burning down, and then they're building things again, and then they're burning down, and so on, and so on, and so on. And at this point, what are we going to do? Like, what do we have to do to stop our city from continuing to burn down? Well, they were starting to build walls on houses that were two or three feet thick of just straight brick to make them fireproof. They were also widening streets and building a fire department capable of responding to calamities of massive proportions. One of the more interesting decisions they made to try and make buildings safer and less likely to burn down was create metal buildings, which, you know, sounds good in theory, right? Metal doesn't burn. If the fire reaches your house, it won't burn because it's metal and the fire will be stopped there. Just close the doors and the shutters and you'll be safe. Except if you think about it for any longer than about 45 seconds. What metal does when it gets hot is expand. And when you have a fire raging outside, the doors and windows expand and swell shut. And then you get stuck. And as it groves around burning the things that are outside that are going to be flammable, you're stuck inside a metal house. And when you're stuck inside a metal house that's completely surrounded by fire, what does that become? An oven. And many people were baked inside metal houses that were stuck, that no one could get them out of because the houses were too hot and the doors and windows were swelled shut. Absolutely horrifying, horrifying way to die. Basically, all this is to say that fires were an integral part of the history of San Francisco, and they began to take extraordinary measures to prevent them. A lot of the things that they did were unheard of at the time, or if they were heard of, it wasn't all in one place. It was one city did this, and one city did this, and one city did this. But San Francisco basically implemented anything they could get their hands on. They had installed cisterns throughout the city to help fight anything that sprang up. They had a complicated system of fire hydrants and water pipes to provide water all over the city. There were 4,000 fire hydrants in the city in 1906. The fire departments had engines and a dedicated career fire department. They had firefighters on call at all times. It wasn't a volunteer fire brigade like most towns were. They were prepared the city had 36 fire engine companies, 8 trunk companies, 7 chemical companies, and 1 water tower. They had an alarm system to notify them of any alarm in the city. They had fire watches. It was a fully modern and state-of-the-art fire department for the time. It is hard to argue that any fire department anywhere was better prepared or better funded than the San Francisco Fire Department in 1906. They rightly felt prepared for anything. They had response capabilities to respond to any fire that broke out in their city. And that's why they're about to be proven that there is nothing that can prepare you for the worst case scenario. At 5.12 a.m. on Wednesday, April 18, 1906, the ground began to shake. Well, shake is an understatement. It was violently rocking back and forth like a flag blowing in a hurricane force wind. San Franciscans reported being awoken by a violent, violent shaking. Many reported that there was the sound of 
crashing and china shattering and windows shattering and screams and banging and rumbling and just insane noises everywhere. They were they woke up to see their walls and as much as 25 degrees out of angle, which is insane if you think about it. They were absolutely terrified. They would get up and run out of their houses to find everyone else in the street huddled together, also confused as to what in the world was going on. They woke up, ran outside, and found fires everywhere. They found their neighbors' houses destroyed and shattered and wailing and screaming and the sound of destruction everywhere. It was complete pandemonium throughout the city. And they had no idea what to do. There was nowhere to go. An earthquake with an estimated magnitude of 7.9 struck the San Andreas Fault, which ran directly under San Francisco. Still runs directly under San Francisco, to make those of you that live in San Francisco feel a little less safe. The shaking lasted only about 42 seconds. But that was 42 seconds of absolute hell. It toppled buildings, destroyed bridges, ripped giant holes in the ground, collapsed houses, destroyed rail lines, destroyed entire roads. It moved an entire river six miles south. But it destroyed two things that would turn out to be crucial over the next coming days. The natural gas lines and the water lines. Water mains were broken all over the city. One water main ran along six miles of the San Andreas Fault where it ripped open and it destroyed it. After the shaking stopped, that's when it got really bad. That's when the fire started. Fueled by broken gas lines, over 50 separate fires were now raging throughout the city. And these aren't small fires. These are, on a normal day, would be five, six, seven alarm fires. Those are big fires. Those pull out several stations at once. There were 50 of them all over the city, all at once. There's no department probably now that could handle that. Maybe New York City, maybe Los Angeles. If you have 50 full alarm fires going at one time, there's, I can't, I don't even know if New York City could handle that. And they have one of the biggest fire departments on the planet. So, 1906 San Francisco Fire Department, who's still using horse-drawn engines, was in deep, deep trouble. You see, a good portion of the San Francisco Fire Department had responded to a full alarm fire at 11 p.m. the night before, and it took several hours to fully extinguish that fire. Most of the responding companies did not arrive back to their stations and get back into bed until around 4 a.m., the earthquake, that I will be absolutely amazed if anyone actually managed to sleep through, happened at 5.12 a.m. And if you sleep through that on the fire department, you're quickly going to be woken up because everyone else in your house is going to be kicking you and hitting you with things because we have to respond to this. Why are you still asleep? But from 4 a.m. to about 5.12 a.m. gives them an hour and 12 minutes maximum of sleep to fight what was essentially 55 alarm fires throughout the city. And that's if they fell immediately asleep as soon as their head hit the pillow. Because after that fire, they had to come back, put hose away, clean the hose, clean the engine, feed the horses, get the horses water, 
filled the engines back up the whole nine yards. It wasn't just come back, park the engine, put the horses away, and go to bed. It was you still have a lot of work to do after you finish with a fire. And then there was the next issue. The earthquake had destroyed 556 of the 600 batteries that operated the alarm system. Not a single alarm sounded during the entire ordeal. There were 50 fires, at least 50 fires, going in the entire city of San Francisco, and not a single alarm went off. That means that they had to go out of their houses, many of which had collapsed, many of which had the were damaged, and they had to literally climb out of, and then get their bearings and find out how they're going to get to these fires and figure out where the fires are just from ground level and where the smoke is. Captain Charles Cullen of engine number six was awoken by the shaking. Engine number six was located on 6th Street between Folsom and Shipley Streets. Hopefully we will have a map up for you guys to be able to see where these next uh, several stories of engine companies and truck companies and battalion chiefs um, were able to respond from. As soon as the shaking started, the doors for the engine house opened and all the horses to pull the engines ran outside. So the first task for the fire department was chasing down the horses amid an active earthquake and also debris falling everywhere. The second task for engine number six was figuring out how to actually get the engine out of the bay because they were now there was now a giant hole in the floor and the back of the engine house had collapsed three feet. Somehow, they managed to immediately save 16 people in two collapsed houses within a few minutes of the shaking having stopped, which is super impressive. Chasing down horses, they ended up having to pull the engine out by hand while others captured the horses to bring them back over a giant hole in the ground and a partially collapsed firehouse. Seriously impressive stuff. In engine company number four, firefighter James O'Neill was getting water for the horses to drink when the neighboring brick wall of the American Hotel crashed through the wall of the firehouse and instantly killed him. And that's the other thing that they had to deal with, is some of the firefighters died during the earthquake. So a lot of them were operating down men because they either were killed during the quake or were injured during the quake and couldn't respond. Engine company number two, led by Captain George Brown, had arrived back at their station around 3.30 a.m. after fighting the second alarm fire at a cannery the night before. This station was located at 22 O'Farrell Street. The whole station was awoken by the shaking, and when they got out of the building, they saw smoke a couple blocks away. They immediately responded to where that smoke was. There, they found one of the other stations destroyed and discovered the chief of the entire San Francisco Fire Department, Dennis Sullivan, lying mortally wounded among the ruins next to his wife, Margaret. Fire Chief Sullivan was asleep on the third floor of the fire station with his wife. The chief and his wife did not make it to the stairs before the building collapsed. They were dug out of the rubble by the firefighters in that station, several nearby police officers, and several employees from the San Francisco Bulletin newspaper who came from across the street to help get them out. And that's a big issue. They lost the man that should have been in charge. And so now they have to figure out, not only do they have to figure out how to get their engines out, how to get their horses caught and brought back in, who they still have available to work, they don't have a command structure anymore. The commander of the department has been killed. 
they're in disarray at this point. They have to figure out who is going to lead them. And all that just from the earthquake. And then they started to find the fires. Every single one of these stations responded to fires. Every single one reported the same thing. Lots of fire, no water to fire with. Engine company number six split their crew in half. One half to fight the fire, one half to rescue people from collapsed buildings. They had ten men in their engine company. So five to fight fires, five to rescue people. They were currently at the corner of 6th and Folsom. They managed to pull some water from a broken main and prevent the fire from jumping northwest across 6th Street. Also in the corner of 6th and Folsom, they rescued two people from a collapsed hotel. 42 people were in the hotel, two made it out alive. No sooner had they rescued these two people, the water supply died and it forced them to flee. In order to escape with their lives, they wrapped wet sacks around their heads and then hand-pulled the engine northeast along Folsom Street, stopping every once in a while to try and get water from the sewers, but failing. They eventually abandoned all hose and focused solely on carrying people out of collapsed houses. By 11 a.m. on Thursday, they were still fighting the fire. So they started at 5 a.m. on Wednesday, a full 30 hours later, still fighting fire. They ended up being able to get the fire under control, but not, having, not before having to retreat all the way back to 20th Street. They finally were relieved on Friday. The 10 men of Vincent Company Number 6 fought fire for 55 straight hours. Engine Company Number 2, led by Captain George Brown, after having assisted in the attempted rescue of Fire Chief Sullivan, immediately responded to a call on Market and Kearney Streets. They tried every single hydrant in a two-block area found absolutely no water. So they did what anyone would do. They found some sand at a nearby construction site and did their best to extinguish fire with that. Which, kudos to them. Getting close enough to what at this point was a massive fire to throw sand on it is seriously impressive. They then traveled down to Geary Street, where they found a lodging house that had collapsed from the earthquake, and it was just beginning to burn. They immediately began attempts to extinguish the fire and rescue the people inside. Captain Brown was carrying out a victim when the staircase he was on collapsed. He dislocated the bones in his heel and sprained his ankle. Now you would think at this point he would decide, Ah, I've been doing this long enough. I need some help. You know, the man kept working. He had his wound looked at briefly twice and just kept right on trucking. Engine Company 2 moved on and looked for water to fight various fires in at least a dozen different places. They may have well have been in the Sahara. They found absolutely nothing. There was no water anywhere. They fought fire after fire until April 20th. Two of the company members became so exhausted they had to be taken to the hospital for treatment. Engineer John J. Mitchell and Lieutenant Edward Lennon would not be held down, though, and after about six hours in the hospital returned to continue fighting the fire. They were literally so tired, they dropped where they stood, had to be taken to the hospital, and waited for six hours before deciding, nah, I'm going back out there to fight more fire. That is impressive. That is impressive. The rest of the company would occasionally take an hour to rest in doorways or in the street next to their engine. The men of Engine Company 2 worked for over 50 hours straight with essentially no breaks and little to no water to actually do their jobs. We're deep into the fire now. There are fires raging everywhere. 
People are trapped everywhere. There's no water to fight the fires. The fire department has no way to stop the fires from spreading. So the only real option is to create fire breaks. And what is the quickest way to create fire breaks? If you think back to the first Great Fire of London, you already have the answer. That's right, blow up buildings. So, in numerous locations around the city, dynamite and black powder were brought in to blow up buildings to create fire breaks. Now, if you think back to the Great Fire of London, that worked fairly well. But there's one difference between then and now. The fire department in London, at the time, had plenty of access to water, so they could blow up buildings that were a distance away, and any fires that broke out from blowing up the buildings could be immediately put out. The fire department in San Francisco did not have water to put out these fires that were created by blowing up the buildings. Luckily, stick dynamite doesn't really have this effect. Black powder does, and powdered dynamite does, but stick dynamite doesn't really have that effect. Fortunately, they quickly ran out of stick dynamite. They didn't really have an option. They had to create fire breaks, so they just continued on after the stick dynamite ran out. First Lieutenant Raymond Briggs was one of the men tasked with dynamiting buildings. He ran out of dynamite blowing up a building. Then he was given several wagons full of black powder, but was hesitant to use it for fear of causing more fires. Unfortunately, he was pressured into using it and blew up two buildings on the corner of Kearney and Clay Streets. They immediately caught fire, and several bits of the building ignited and were thrown across Kearney, which ended up burning down the entire block, which seems extremely unfortunate for that guy. He knew what would happen, and he was forced to do it anyway, and the thing he knew would happen ended up happening. And a similar story happened with Engine 29. Civilians brought several boxes of powdered explosive and dynamited both sides of Langton Street, between Folsom and Harrison. It didn't work, as there was no water to stop the fires that sprang up after the explosions. In fact, there are multiple reports from different engine companies, truck companies, and even battalion chiefs that no matter how much dynamiting they did, the blocks would burn anyway. It seemed nothing would stop this fire. This fire had more than enough help getting to be the size it was just from the earthquake and the fire efforts trying to create the fire breaks. But there was a curious thing happening throughout San Francisco in the immediate aftermath of the shaking. It began to spread around that many people would not get paid insurance money if their buildings were only damaged by the earthquake and not the fire. Oftentimes, earthquake insurance was not included with fire insurance, and since San Francisco had suffered a load of fires in the past, people had fire insurance, but they didn't have earthquake insurance. So if their house wasn't damaged by the fire, then they're not going to get paid. So in the chaos of the moment, many people did what I think a lot of us would do. Probably what I would do in that case. The rest of the city's burning. May as well throw mine in there. They started to set fire to their own houses. Captain Leonard Wildman in the Army Signal Corps reported that he was stopped by an unknown firefighter along the waterfront and told that people were burning their own buildings because they were told they would not get paid insurance money if it wasn't damaged by the fire. The entire town was basically destroyed at this point. Many people lost their jobs when the shaking started because their places of work were literally destroyed. That insurance payout would be the only thing keeping a lot of families from starving, so I can't really blame them. 
but it certainly didn't help stop the blaze. It's not like they created fire breaks. Like in the wildfire, occasionally they'll start fires a little ways away from the fire to help create fire breaks. Those are created by professionals. These were random people trying to get their houses to burn so that they could get paid. And it's often that, I mean, most people nowadays don't read the fine print of their insurance, so they just assume that if something happens, they're going to get paid. But insurance companies back then and even now don't always are not always forthcoming with what is in what is covered and what's not covered. So earthquakes weren't covered in San Francisco. I'd love to tell you that something did stop this fire, but nothing really did. It consumed some 80% of San Francisco. The fire department put forth a valiant effort to stop this fire from spreading farther, but there was really nothing they could do. Battalion Chief W.D. Waters at one point had to hook Engine 21 to Engine 34 to Engine 14 to Engine 19 to Engine 7, each laying 800 feet of hose just to get a little bit of water to spray at the fire. That's about 4,000 feet of hose just to get a little bit of water. That's almost a full mile to get just a bit of water to spray on a fire. And even that didn't last long. Engines were completely draining the old cisterns. They were hooking up into sewers only to find mud and dirt. They were trying to pump from the bay. They were having water pumped to them from boats trapped in the bay because the electricity to lift the bridges was out, so they couldn't even leave if they wanted to. Fire crews were finding giant holes in the ground made by the quake, filled with water from broken water mains, and were using rocks and dirt to create dams in order to pump water from that onto the fire. Anything that could be used to supply water was being used. And it just wasn't enough. They were probably the best prepared fire department in the world for the situation, and conditions were just right for them to just not have anything they can do to stop this. It was just out of control. It's the worst possible thing that could have happened to the best prepared fire department. Things were so bad in San Francisco after the earthquake, the army was called in to help maintain peace. Rioting and looting were common. The army would patrol streets to try and prevent this, but it was completely out of hand. In response to the looting, the mayor of San Francisco at the time, Eugene Schmitz, issued a pro- proclamation stating, The federal troops, the members of the regular police force, and all special police officers have been authorized by me to kill any and all persons found engaging in looting or in the commission of any other crime. So, it was, it was bad. This didn't really stop the looting. And there were multiple reports of the soldiers and firefighters joining in on the looting and rioting. One story from Frederick Collins tells of a young man that left his house in the middle of the night to get some whiskey for a sick mother and was confronted in the street by a soldier, was told to dump the whiskey. When the young man refused, the soldier shot him dead in the street. The fires burned for a full four days and four nights before finally being stopped. The total damage was reported to be around $400 million. That is $13.4 billion today. That's a staggering amount of money. Some 25,000 buildings were destroyed on 490 city blocks. When I say it destroyed the city, it literally destroyed the entire city. Buildings that weren't burnt were damaged by the earthquake. It was damage everywhere. 
Panoramic photos, which you can find on our website, disastroushistory.com, show the fire mid-progress. It looks like the entire city is on fire. Relief efforts began immediately. The Army was tasked with housing and feeding more than 250,000 displaced San Francisco residents. They built 5,610, 720-square-foot houses that were little more than tents. The rent for one of these houses was $2 a month, and you could flat out buy one for $50. But, I mean, everyone just lost everything, and a lot of them didn't have insurance. So I don't know where they're going to come up with the money. There's nowhere to work. And the other issue is these houses only could hold up to 20,000 people. Millions were sent from around the world to help rebuild and care for the victims. The final death toll is unknown. The city of San Francisco officially recognized the death toll to be over 3,000 people. The original death toll from 1906 ranges from 375 to 500 people. However, this number completely ignores any and all deaths in Chinatown area of San Francisco that was ravaged by both fire and the earthquake and was largely ignored in relief efforts. At the time, San Francisco was the ninth largest city in the United States and was rapidly growing. But with the destruction caused by the earthquakes and fires, that growth slowed rapidly. Many who would have settled in San Francisco ended up in Los Angeles. In fact, from 1900 to 1910, Los Angeles tripled its population from 102,000 people to 319,000 people. San Francisco went from 342,000 people to only 416,000 people, and that trend continued throughout the 20th century. This really did stop San Francisco's growth right in its tracks. San Francisco did rebuild rapidly. The entire city was essentially rebuilt from by the time of the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition that was meant to show off the new city. But in the end, San Francisco survived and came back to be the San Francisco we know today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at DisastrousHSTRY, so Disastrous History without the vowels in history, and on Instagram at Disastrous History, spelled correctly. We also now have a website, DisastrousHistory.com. There you will find each episode as an article with pictures and maps and other stuff that you can use to follow along. Remember, stay safe, check your smoke detector batteries.